I love Christmas music. Of all of the aspects of Christmas, the music is far and away my favorite. Far more than the lights or the decorations or the trees or even the gift giving or the time you know, gathered together with friends and family. My favorite by far is the music. And I love all types of Christmas music. I love the old stuff, the Andy Williams and the Bing Crosbys and all of the really good, timeless, classic Christmas music. I even like the new stuff. I love some of the new classics, the Mariah Carey's of the world. I'm a big fan of every type of Christmas music and even some of the reimagined versions by new artists who kind of rework the old stuff and make it sound new but old at the same time whether it's orchestra or choirs or organs or stringed instrument, instruments or even modern rock bands, every version of every Christmas song I love. And so I have been listening to Christmas music nonstop for the last 25, 26 days, with the small exception for when Taylor Swift dropped her new album. And so I had to pivot and kind of consume and download all of that, and it's, it's a good album. But otherwise, I have been listening exclusively to Christmas music. But maybe of all of the categories of all of the Christmas music, my favorite is the really old stuff. Not the stuff, you know, that we listen to or that you might have listened to in the 40s or 50s, but like the 1840s and the 1850s, the really old, the timeless, the Christmas hymns. And the reason that I love those far and away more than all of the other types of Christmas music and more than all of the other aspects of Christmas itself is because of the language, because of the stories that it tells and the way that it tells its stories. It uses words in a way that we don't use anymore. It speaks in a meter and in a manner that is long forgotten to our common world. And so I love pouring over some of the lines and the lyrics of some of these older Christmas hymns and just unpacking the depth, how they were able to capture so much power so much theology, so much depth and meaning into just these very small phrases. And so as you open them up, it's like the Russian nesting dolls. As you keep unpacking, there's more and more and more there. And so there are a couple that I think are particularly powerful. And they're all from songs that you likely sing every year at Christmas, maybe when you gather in a church or as you're driving in your car, listening to some station or some playlist. But some of my most favorite come from songs like Hark the Herald. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Listen to these words. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay, his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. It's poetry. We sing these songs every year. It's one of the songs that I request every year because it's just so powerful. The words and the way that it tells this Christmas story. The depth and the meaning that it can capture. My other favorite is O Little Town of Bethlehem. In this first stanza, it says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. 
the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I love the way that it paints these pictures, that it captures all of these subtle emotions that we carry into the Christmas seasons and carry out of the Christmas seasons that we secretly store in closets in our heart and in our life and in our soul. And these, these songs are able to unpack them. They're able to bring this stuff out into the open because so many of the Christmas songs that we sing and listen to it is all of the bright tinsel and the flashing lights and the glamour of Christmas. But the really old stuff, it brings out some of the harder realities of Christmas, the more difficult emotions that we face as humans, and it allows us to maybe be more fully ourselves when we sing these songs instead of just the happy, shiny versions that we pretend to be, whether it's on social media or in our relationships. And so I love the way that these songs evoke emotions and aspects of who maybe we really are when no one else is looking or when we're being really honest. My favorite of all of the songs, of all the Christmas songs and of all the lines and the lyrics and the words, is found in O Holy Night, in this line. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Every word weighs a thousand pounds in this, in this verse. I love those first four words, a thrill of hope. I mean, I think Christmas really is a season of hope. It's a season of excitement. It's a season of waiting and anticipation of countdown of longing, of yearning, of expectation. But so much of the hope that we experience or that we talk about or we encounter at Christmas is the happy hope, the polished, shining hope. But really, hope is far more complex and far more nuanced than maybe the versions that we encounter in the gift stores and in the shopping malls. This type of hope there's a thrill to it. There's an excitement. There's a danger. There's a risk. Imagine jumping off a cliff into a lake or riding a roller coaster or asking that person out that you've been you know, wanting to meet and wanting to get to know for a while. Any of the things that are truly exciting that elicit a variety of emotions in ourselves and in our lives, there's a bit of danger. There's an element of uncertainty, of, you know, unsuredness of what's going to happen, of the way this might go. There's this risk to true hope, to real hope, that I love how this song and these words capture. Because I think that hope in its purest form is actually this really complicated thing that we deal with. I think that we are designed as people to search for hope. I think that is one of the main reasons why we love this Christmas season, because it is so hopeful. We start to put up the lights and things get a little warmer, a little brighter, more inviting, cozier. We start to spend time maybe with people that we haven't seen in a while. And so there's a renewed sense of relationships. There's an element of, you know, generosity and good spiritedness. You know, we drift back towards, you know, the angels of our better nature, so to speak, during this Christmas season. And so there's so much warmth and things to look forward to in Christmas, that it is easy to see how Christmas is this season of hope. But I think in the same way that Christmas is a season of hope, 
this hope causes us to maybe lean out and lean away and be a little cautious and a little hesitant because of the risk that comes with hope. Because in the midst of all of the joy and all of the celebration and all of the things that we hope will happen, whether it's today or in the future, the way that we allow ourselves to lean into hope and experience hope, there's also a bit of uncertainty, a bit of hesitation, because we don't know if the things that we hope for will ever actualize. And so I think that that's why whoever wrote this, this song, O Holy Night, pairs it and juxtaposes it with this idea of a weary world. A weary world experiencing this thrill, this danger, this excitement of hope. Because we've all been in a place in our lives where we have felt weary, where we have felt tired, where we have been tired of hoping. We have been worn out from all of the hoping that we have done and the hoping not amounting to anything. Maybe this year of all the years is the best example of all the hoping that we have been doing and all of the ways that our hoping has gone unfulfilled. I remember when all of this stuff with COVID broke. Me and my team were getting ready to prepare, you know, a couple weeks away for Easter services. And we thought, surely, surely we will be back in church for Easter. We had great hope. We had great expectation that we, we, we would all be back together inside, in person, without any masks on, in just a few short weeks. And yet here we are at Christmas, still hoping that we can get back together in person. My guess is you have a long list of things that you have hoped for over the last nine to ten months, whether it's related to COVID or whether it's just in your own life. Ways that you have had some expectation or some anticipation about the way this year was going to go, way this, the way the season of life was going to go, and maybe you're feeling a bit weary because it hasn't gone the way that you planned. That phone call, that interview, that career path, that dream of the perfect family, that relationship, that health diagnosis. You had all of these hopes for what it would look like or how it might end up. And maybe now you're holding the pieces of some of those dreams and some of those things that you had hoped for. And it feels heavy. Maybe you've been holding them for a while. Maybe you've been holding them for years or decades and you have been fighting and struggling and hoping that one day something will look different, something will break and be different, that tomorrow will be better than today. And yet, you find yourself this Christmas in a very weary place. That's one of the dangers of hope, is that when it doesn't actualize and when it doesn't realize, we become a little disappointed. And if we experience disappointment again and again and again, I think it leads to fatigue which leads to this weariness and to this kind of sense of despair and hopelessness. I think the other thing that happens with hope is we become a little distrustful of it. You know, we wait for the other shoe to drop. We start to do this dress rehearsal for disappointment, this dress rehearsal for tragedy in our own life. Something good happens to us, but we don't want to lean into it. We don't want to fully embrace it. We don't want to trust it. Because what if it's not as good as it seems? What if it fails in the end? What if the relationship that we had been hoping for ends up in divorce or ends up in heartbreak? Well, maybe I don't want to lean into that too far. And so we start dress rehearsal and we start preparing ourselves for worst case scenario. For the way that this moment surely is too good to be true. We got that call back for that job interview or that new career opportunity. And we are so excited about it. But right before we're about to lean in and really celebrate and feel the hope of the moment, we start to run through all of the scenarios of all of the ways that it could fall short, 
of the ways that it could go wrong, the ways that we may not actually be qualified for this particular job. We start talking ourselves out of the hope that we long to feel because of all of the lists of disappointments maybe we've experienced in our life or just as a self-protective mechanism because we don't want to open ourselves up and be vulnerable to this particular moment of hope. We don't want to lean in and fully embrace it because hope is exciting. But in that excitement is also danger. And I think what happens in all of these different ways and all of these different moments and scenarios in our life is the weight of all of the hoping causes us to be weary. And so tonight, together, I want to look at the very first Christmas story. Because in the same way that we experience hope as thrilling and exciting and dangerous is the very backdrop for this first Christmas story. A world that had been waiting, wondering, hoping for a long time. And then in the moment when something new begins to happen, there is this opportunity to dress rehearse disappointment, to dress rehearse tragedy and all of the ways this might be dreams that are dashed and ways that expectations might go unmet. And so I want to read to you from the very first Christmas story. And hopefully in it we can discover again the thrill of hope. So this is in Matthew, the first of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is in the first chapter of Matthew. And Matthew is writing to a group of new believers, people who were formerly Jewish, And they're starting to follow this man named Jesus sometime after his death and resurrection. And he's trying to convince them, to persuade them that Jesus truly was who he says he was. That he truly was the Messiah, the Son of God, the chosen one who was supposed to save the world and deliver it from its sins. And so Matthew is trying to write and compel this group of first century Christians to understand that the thing that they are hoping is true. That the person that they have placed their hope in is who they hope him to be. And so this is what Matthew says in the first chapter in verse 18. This is how he begins. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So right off the bat, like we just said, he wants you to know that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is how his birth happened. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the, to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And we rush through this because we're trying to get to the baby and to the angels and to the shepherds and to all of the other celebrations and moments in this story. But can you imagine just for a moment if you're Joseph? I don't know anything about Joseph but we can imagine some things about him. So they say he's a carpenter, whether that meant that he worked with wood or he actually worked with stone, it's unsure, but Joseph worked with his hands and he built things. And so you can imagine Joseph was familiar to hard work and to putting in you know, the amount of time and effort needed to create things. He had to do things a certain way and the right way, you know, measure twice, cut once. And so he was probably a man of principle. And Joseph finally meets this girl. And I don't know how their love story goes, but maybe he saw her walking down the street one day and he noticed her and he thought she was beautiful. And he's like, I would love to meet this lady, but I don't know who she is. And so someday he musters up the courage to walk alongside of her and introduce himself. He says, hi, I'm Joseph. And she says, hi, I'm Mary. 
and they get to know each other and Joseph realizes that he wants to spend the rest of his life with Mary and so Joseph saves up and works a little harder maybe he gets a ring and he finally finds an opportunity to get Mary alone and you know has the opportunity to ask Mary's dad for permission and then you know, he goes down on one knee and asks Mary the question, and she says yes. And then they have the reception with their family right after because Joseph had invited all of them and told them to meet at this particular restaurant at this particular time so that they could celebrate because Joseph anticipated that maybe Mary was going to say yes. And it's all been perfect just as Joseph had planned thus far. And then one day, Mary shows up and says, hey, Joseph. She, he's like, hey, Mary. And she says, we need to talk. And he says, great, what's up? And she says, I'm pregnant. And you could imagine in that moment for Joseph, before Mary has a chance to explain that it's from God, that it's the Holy Spirit, which still probably took a lot of explanation, you could imagine all of the hope in Joseph's life going rushing out like air out of a balloon, just this giant whoosh. You've experienced this whoosh in your life, that moment where all of the blood drains to your stomach, the moment when you feel like, I can't believe what I'm hearing where it feels like you're observing yourself from outside of yourself and this moment just feels at once completely heavy and devastating and also really hollow and empty at the same time. This is kind of a moment of despair. This is the moment where hope leaves. And you can imagine Joseph being in this place. And so Joseph's trying to figure out what to do. And so because she's pregnant... It violates all of the things that Joseph grew up believing to be true, all of the ways that he thought that you were supposed to live and act and conduct yourself in the world according to his religion. And so because he loved Mary, because he cared about Mary, he didn't want to embarrass her. And so he had a plan that he was just going to divorce her quietly, send her on her way because of the thing that had happened that wasn't according to plan and all of the ways that all the things that Joseph had hoped for were gone. But, and this is what the scripture says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Joseph, son of David, lean into this moment. Joseph, son of David, open yourself up to the vulnerability of hope. Be willing to risk everything on this hope, Joseph. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And in this moment, after this dream, Joseph awakes and he has a choice. He has a choice where he can listen to the dream, and he can lean into this moment, and he can live with and open himself up to this thrill of hope anew. This idea that maybe the thing that he thought was going to destroy all of his dreams is actually the continuation of a new and greater and different dream that he could have never imagined. He could lean into this moment, or he could lead away. He could close himself off. He could shut it down, and he could dismiss Mary privately and go about his life, carrying the weight of this moment, carrying all of the kind of fragments of this, these dreams that he had for his life with Mary and the family that he hoped that they would have together. And so Joseph makes a choice. And he decides to continue on and get married to Mary. And this is what it said. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. And then the writer of Matthew, trying to convince a group of people 
to hope and put their, their hope and trust in the person of Jesus, quotes prophecy that came 700 years ago in a moment in a time where another group of people were looking around the world trying to figure out where they could place their hope and trust. If God was still at work at the world, if God was still at work in their world. And this comes from the prophet Isaiah, who says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in this very first Christmas story, what we see is layer upon layer upon layer of people struggling to navigate hope, wrestling with the weariness that comes from not being certain of whether or not the thing that you were hoping in will come true, of wrestling with the weariness of failed expectations and decades and you know, centuries of disappointment. You know, the moment before this story all takes place in the Gospel of Matthew, the people of Israel, the people of Joseph, have gone through 400 years of silence. Not a word from God. Not a message, not an indication, not a burning bush, no dove or rainbow in the sky. Just waiting, wondering if God was still out there. Wondering if God still cared about them. Wondering why God would leave them in the place that they found themselves in. Waiting without hope. Because they had been hoping. And it never came to pass. It never actualized. It never realized. And, and so in the song, O Holy Night, the thrill of hope enters into a weary world. This world of people tired of waiting, tired of hoping, tired of risking the vulnerability that comes with leaning in to the possibility that something new could be breaking in their life. The possibility that tomorrow could look different and could look better than today. They were tired of that risk. They were tired of dealing with all of the emotions and all of the push and the pull that comes from exposing yourself to hope. They had given up and they had closed themselves off. And so it's upon that backdrop that Joseph finds himself in the exact same place, the opportunity to choose whether or not he wanted to lean into hope, whether he wanted to risk all that could happen by trusting in this thing that the angel said to him in a dream. Joseph had a choice before him. Would he protect himself? Would he do what was best for him? Close down and shut, shut off himself from all of the potential, all of the thrill that existed in this new thing? Would he be willing to believe that tomorrow could look different and better than today? This is the Christmas story that we celebrate, that we find ourselves in year after year. And maybe perfectly this year of all the years, this is the exact same backdrop that we discover the Christmas story again. A group of people tired of waiting, tired of wondering, worn out from all of the hoping that we have to do, anticipating that at any moment the shoe is going to drop, that all of the good things that look like they're on the horizon are going to be too good to be true, that the hope that is before us is uncertain and that it's dangerous and that it's risky and It'd be a whole lot easier if we just prepared ourselves for the disappointment that would inevitably come. It's safer that way. We don't have to risk as much. We don't have to open ourselves up to the possibility of hope 
capturing our lives and turning everything upside down and leading us into a new and better place because we all long for it. We all want that type of hope. It's the reason behind so many of the choices that we make in our life, the people that we surround ourselves with, the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time, the thoughts that we think. We long for something to capture our attention, to excite us, to elicit that spark of hope in our life. And at the same time, we're scared of it because of all of the risks that come that we've already talked about. And yet, here we find ourselves in the Christmas story. And my favorite part of this Christmas story is when Matthew reiterates the prophecy, reminding them of the promise that God had made 700 years ago, that Joseph is reminded of, that he would have been well aware of, that his ancestors had grown tired of hoping in, this promise that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and that they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But here's what's so cool about the Christmas story, is the way that the story begins often determines how the story ends. And so let me read you the very last verse out of the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. You see, Joseph leans into hope. And something new happens in the world. God is born and is wrapped in human flesh and he walks and lives among us. And he teaches us and he demonstrates what it means to love others and to love God. And that same demonstration cost him his life. And so he's killed. And then they bury him. And then he's resurrected three days later. And he appears again to his friends and to his disciples and to his followers. And he gives them a charge to go out and share this same message of hope. To spread the word, to tell people that tomorrow can be better than today. The message that was promised to Joseph, that was promised to the people of Israel, and that is promised to us today. And this is how Matthew ends in the same way that he begins. A child will be born, and you would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in Jesus' final words to his followers at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, this is what he says. And surely, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The thrill of hope that we find in the Christmas story is that God is with us not just thousands of years ago, not just in a prophecy, not just in a dream to some guy named Joseph in a town called Nazareth, that God is with us today in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our hopelessness, and that God is inviting us to believe in a promise that he was with us yesterday, that he is with us today, and that he will be with us tomorrow. So this Christmas, whatever you're carrying, whatever hope that you're afraid to lean into, I hope that you will begin to believe the promise that with God, and because that God is with us, that your tomorrow can be better than your today. It is a thrill of hope that the weary world rejoices. Why? Because yonder, tomorrow breaks a new and a glorious morn. Friends, God is with us yesterday, today, and always. Let us pray. Heavenly God, we thank you on this day that we come to celebrate the gift of your son, 
the moment that you stepped in time into the story, and the moment that you stepped in time to our story, that you reminded us that you are with us and that nothing can separate us from your love, not distance, not fear, not anxiety or worry, not even death itself can separate us from you and your love for us. That you are always with us in every moment and at all time. And that because of that, we can live into the hope that tomorrow can look different and better than today. Because it's a tomorrow with you. And so God, we thank you for this day that we get to come together to be reminded of this truth and to celebrate your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.